Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Good morning. How are we? All right. Like, like she said, my name is Brandon Clements. I'm one of the pastors at our Lexington Church. It's so good to be here this morning. Uh, I will say you may have to bear with my voice this morning. I preached at our downtown church before coming over here, and uh, I'm an introvert, you guys, so I don't typically use that many words in one day. I don't know if we have any fellow introverts in here, but I tell my wife I have a word limit each day, and it's hard for me to go over that many words, but uh, very excited to be with you guys here today. Um, and yet, as you probably know in this series, we've been looking at different interactions Jesus had with people in different places and how he responded to them. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Jesus and the jealous. Jesus and the jealous, yeah. So do you ever compare your life to the lives of others and feel a certain way about that comparison? Your body, maybe, your occupation, your marriage or lack thereof, your income, your appearance, if you came in smiling, that intro may have wiped it off temporarily, <laughs> but hopefully it'll be back by the time we wrap up. Now, I don't know uh, the last time you may have had that feeling creep up where you saw someone else or something about their life and you felt that, that feeling, that pang of jealousy. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was this morning when you walked in. Who knows? But from the jump, I'd like to bring some clarity to this topic uh, because I think there's a spectrum of things you could easily feel jealousy over. These things range from least bothersome at the top to most deeply felt at the bottom. So I have a little chart to show you. I'll start at the top with nagging comparisons. Nagging comparisons. These are the more seldom, like less irksome ways that you might sometimes think about how your life stacks up to others. Maybe it's things like, man, I wish I had the money he or she has, the car they have. But it's not like that eats away at you. You just like have the thought and then you move on with your life. Certified jealousy would be a little bit deeper than that. So maybe it's someone whose marriage just seems really, really easy. And yours most certainly is not easy. So when you see them, sometimes you get a little knot in your stomach. And you feel that, that pang of jealousy of wishing your marriage was, was easy like theirs is. Almost as if you can feel your insides turning with the green hues of jealousy. This is what it feels like when you see someone whose life looks like what you deep down hoped yours would. Where you scroll through social media and experience feelings that come from seeing others blessed in ways that maybe you haven't been. And then deeper lasting griefs would be a step below that even. Something where it's a consistent and dominating factor of your life. Something that very much eats away at your lived experience. A gnawing sense of questions that haunt you. Questions like, why didn't I get that? Why was God not giving me this desire, this outcome, this trait? Why did God give me this element of my life that I struggle with so much? And just to be clear, the same issue can register anywhere on the scale for different people. So let's say you have something you dislike about your body or your appearance. That could fall in the category of nagging comparison for some of you. As in, occasionally you see someone else or have the thought, I wish I was taller or thinner or shorter or had different features, etc. But then you just move on. But for some of you, it might actually be more of a certified jealousy or even a deep and lasting grief because of the effect that it has on you. Your dissatisfaction with your body, the constant comparing to those around you, the patterns of thought and behavior it's led you to, 
have become a persistent and cumbersome issue that clouds the perception of your whole life. Or maybe take someone going through middle age. Uh, There's a unique trait in that season that people call the the midlife crisis. And my favorite way I've heard it is C.S. Lewis called it the inarticulate resentment of middle age. That something is deep, deep down resentful, you're not even sure how to describe it. It's that thing where you wake up one day and realizing that you're no longer building your life, but that your life is built. And all that's left is that you get to live in the life you've already built. And that could be a nagging comparison for some, or for others it could be a certified jealousy, and for others it could be a deep and lasting grief that affects the rest of their waking days. So these things affect us in different ways. And that's the framework I'd like us to consider today as we turn toward our passage. And go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 19. Uh, We're going to be looking at an interaction uh, that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 19, and then a story he tells in response in chapter 20. But first, before we get to our passage, I want to give you the context for where we're picking up the story, because it's important. Um, Jesus had just interacted with uh, someone we call the rich young ruler who went away sad because Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give to the poor. Now, Jesus told him this because this man cared too much about his riches and his life on earth. And Jesus said, if you sell everything and give it away, you'll have treasure in heaven. He introduces a new dimension of reward to this man. But the man walks away sad because, quote, he had great possessions and he wanted to keep them. And Jesus looks at the disciples after this interaction, and he says, it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, who like most people who have ever existed, probably esteemed the rich and wanted to be rich, are, quote, greatly astonished. (laughs) I love that line. So that's the context. We'll pick up in verse 27. And then Peter, who's one of my favorite characters in Scripture because he mouths off a lot, he pipes in with a question that feels loaded. So remember the context, the rich guy walking away sad, the disciples are left there with Jesus, wondering what's up, and here's what Peter says in response. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, what about us? What about me? Isn't that one of the central questions in our comparing? What will I get? What lot will I receive in life? Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. And that's no exaggeration because here we have a group of young men who literally dropped what they were doing, like on a Tuesday, and followed Jesus. Literally. They left family businesses. They left places of employment, family, life trajectories. They left potential future realities, potential future spouses, children, lives. On top of that, they just watched a rich guy walk away sad, and Jesus seemed to indicate that having a wealth of resources could hinder following him. And these young men, who who likely left every prospect they had and have very little position on earth, ask a very logical question. We have left everything and followed you. So what will we have? And I don't know, to me, this question points to the deeper things on the chart that I showed earlier. I don't think this question points to nagging comparisons. I think it points to certified jealousies, maybe even deep and lasting griefs. 
wrestling with the reality of what following Jesus might mean for their earthly lives. What they might miss out on, what they might not get, what they've lost, what's been left behind. If I were to insert some unspoken italics, it might read, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we get? Now follow me here because Jesus' response is as strong as the question is. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I'm going to be honest with you. I know the pastor is supposed to have all the answers. I don't know exactly what Jesus means by this promise in verse 29. It's so grandiose and glorious that it's hard to wrap my mind around fully. Like anyone who's left a house on earth, I kind of get that one, I think. Like maybe if you didn't have a great living environment on earth, like the disciples who were essentially homeless, itinerant ministers with Jesus, who left their homes for his namesake, will receive a hundredfold in the new world. They will have a house that will be a hundred times better. But he doesn't stop at dwelling places, does he? He says anyone who for his sake has left brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, grievous losses, close family relationships that maybe were severed due to their decision to follow Jesus. And Jesus seems to look those grievous losses in the face unflinchingly, and he says, you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But he goes on even further. He says, children and lands. These were young men he was talking to. Men likely with dreams of having kids, having a lineage, a heritage. Many of whom would go on to die for their faith in Christ while single and childless. He looks at these men and he says, you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How does all this work, the fulfillment of all these promises? I don't know exactly, but here's what I do know. There are only two options at the end of the day. Option number one is that this preposterous promise is entirely true in a way that evades our earthly understanding and that the fulfillment of it is so joy-inducing and laughter-provoking and amazing that it would make our head spin if we could see it come to fruition. Option number two is that Jesus is an over-promiser and under-deliverer. And I'll just say that the other times he seemed to be over-promising, it turned out he actually wasn't. Rising from the dead comes to mind. But here's the beautiful thing about this promise. We all, to varying degrees, have what I would call deficits in our lives. Voids. Holes. Things that hurt. Things that feel unfilled or unfulfilled. Things that make us want to look at others in comparison or jealousy. And sometimes these things can be very deep. Very meaningful. 
very life impacting. And Jesus just comes right out and says, if you have a deficit on earth due to following me, it will be filled 100 times over in the new world. And he goes on to name some of the biggest deficits one might have in a list fashion. It's stunning. And in a broader sense, there will be no eternal deficits for those who are in Christ. Amen? Amen. There will be no disappointment in the new heavens and the new earth. Somehow, some way, every lack or deficit you feel on this side will be filled in a way that will be experienced as an overflow, a ridiculous, laugh-inducing abundance. It's an unbelievable promise for lives that are bound to frustrate or disappoint in one way or another. But what I find equally insightful and challenging is the very next story Jesus launches into, because it's almost like he's trying to paint a nuanced vision for them to protect them from all of the dangers of comparing their earthly lives to others. So after Peter's question of what about us, what will we get? Jesus gives them this incredibly audacious promise about the new heavens and the new earth. And then he tells this story, which to me strikes a bit of a different note. So let's check out chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. For context, hiring day laborers to work was a very common practice then. These laborers did not have a lot of economic security or rights and could easily be taken advantage of. There are verses in the Old Testament about how they are to be paid fairly at the end of the day so that they can afford food. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius was a silver coin that was very typical for a day's wages. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. All right, so Jesus has his audience hooked now and the climactic moment is coming. What will the workers who were hired last get? And what about those who came first? Verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Well, that's right. So the last will be first, and the first last. 
Okay, that story's a lot. And all, all that was a lot. So let's zoom out and recap. So go back to the beginning. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, what about us? What will we get? Jesus starts by saying, well, if we're talking about the billions of years we'll spend together in the new world, the answer is essentially everything. Whatever you sacrifice for following me times 100. Any deficit you experience here on earth because of me will be fulfilled in a way that floods the joy capacity of the human soul and resurrected body. But then he proceeds to tell a long story that says, while you were here on earth, your outcomes might not be the same as your neighbor. You may not get the same blessings, the same generosities they do. And that's actually okay. Taken as a whole, it's a well-rounded, challenging, eternal, beautiful answer to Peter's original question. And for the rest of our time, I'd like us to dig into this parable that Jesus tells, because I think there are some gems here. Many of the disciples were, were laborers. They were people who worked with their hands. So this context was intimately familiar to them. The idea of searching for work during the day and then using that money to buy food that night. And this master goes out early in the morning and he promises a denarius for a day's work, which is a very fair rate. The complexity to the story comes in with the groups that come later who come in at lunchtime, in the afternoon, around quitting time. To them, the master did not agree to a specific amount. He only said to one group of them, whatever is right, I will give you. So when the last hired workers go first to collect payment at the end of the day, they get a denarius. And the ones who started that morning early probably get really excited, right? They're probably thinking, here we have found ourselves an unreasonably generous master, one who hands out a whole day's wages for people who worked like an hour. I wonder what we will then get, because we've been here all day. Only to get to the payment table themselves and only receive the denarius they were promised. Now put yourself in their shoes for a second. Picture watching the people in front of you who were like barely even sweaty, rejoicing over the unexpectedly large amount they received. Maybe they're like hooping and hollering. And they're saying, let's go out and celebrate this unreasonable generosity. Meanwhile, you are weary from head to toe. You're exhausted. You're drenched in sweat. And you step forward in line dutifully, expectant, and then you get exactly what they got, exactly what you were promised early that morning. What do your eyes do in such a moment? They probably like scrunch up in confusion and disbelief, right? Like what is happening here? How is this fair? Because on a certain level, this is not fair, right? They got the same as you, and you worked so much harder. How is that fair? On one level, it's not at all. And maybe that's exactly Jesus' point, that life isn't fair, and it isn't going to be fair. And some people are going to get more desirable outcomes here than others. Some lots in life will be more preferable than others. Some people who worked far less than you did will get a more desirable outcome. 
And that's not fair. But consider this story in relation to Jesus' promise from earlier. Because at the end of the story, we have a master who says the following in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend. I love that he calls him friend. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the master actually wasn't unfair to the first workers because he gave them exactly what he promised them. He just chose to show generosity to the others because he's able to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. But my favorite part of the passage actually comes in verse 15. And depending on your Bible translation, you may have a little letter that comes right after verse 15 with a footnote. And the second sentence there that is translated as, or do you begrudge my generosity, is actually translated from a Greek phrase that's very literal. And the actual Greek phrase is, or is your eye bad because I am good? Or is your eye bad because I am good? And when I saw that a while back, it stunned me, you guys. Because it just gave me this clarifying picture. I immediately pictured one of my kids when I was trying to give them something objectively good, but they don't perceive it as such. So they kind of scowl at me with their eyes, you know? That ungrateful, dark look that the human eye can take on when you feel wronged in some way. Is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye ungrateful, jealous, scornful in response to a display of my goodness? It's such a relatable thing because if you stop to think about it, you can actually feel your eye going bad, can't you? You can feel your brow furrow. You feel your eyebrows moving downward and in. The muscles around your eyes closing in on themselves. And in this story, Jesus gives us a picture to consider because here we have a master who represents Christ himself, the same Christ who just a few verses earlier looked at a confused and comparing disciple and made some wild promises. The same Christ who said, do you have a deficit in your life? Maybe even one that hurts more deeply than you can put words to? You won't even believe the ways it'll be filled. You can't even do that math. Your brain can't hold it. It can't properly weigh the height and depth and length of the joy that will come from that deficit being filled to the point of overflowing. Jesus presents himself through this promise as an unreasonably generous God, full stop. Abundantly gracious. And then he goes on to tell a story that makes you feel what it feels like when it seems like he's been unreasonably generous to others, but not to you. Or you feel your eye going bad, scrunching up in confusion and disbelief. And then this master responds to all of us through this story, and he says, is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because of my generosity to others? Is your eye bad because I've been good to you, but in ways that you don't perceive as fair 
are most desired? So I don't know what particular ways you may struggle with this topic, to be honest. Um, My hunch is that some of you might struggle with it a little bit on a more surface level and that some of us might struggle with it a lot on a deeper level. Yeah. So what I'd love to do as we wrap up our time today is just to give an encouragement for all of us and then some particular encouragements for some of us. Uh, So here's a takeaway I'd love for all of us to wrestle with in response to this. Just watch out for the bad eye. Watch out for the bad eye. In this parable, Jesus tells us that we are often tempted to regard God with a souring eye. And our reasons for doing this may be more or less understandable and more or less powerful. But that's the general temptation, to look at him, to look at the things he has not or has given us, and then have our eyes turn bad in response to him. And the reality is the problem ultimately isn't the things our eyes see. The problem is with our eyes themselves, right? The problem is not with what's in front of your eyes, but with your eyes. Your eye sees God's generosity to someone else and the lack of that particular thing in your life, and it sours. But God's generosity is not ultimately in question. Consider Jesus, who Peter asked, what will we get? And he not only looked Peter in the eye and told him, I will fill every deficit you have, but then he went to a cross where sweat and blood would run down his brow into the very eyes he looked at Peter with to make all this possible. The incarnation and cross and resurrection prove once and for all that Jesus is unreasonably generous to us all. And the new world he is creating without a single deficit only adds to the staggering nature of that generosity. So we have to look out for ways that our eyes are prone to forget this. We have to be on the lookout for the ways our eyes are starting to maybe sour toward him. We have to notice those areas of our lives where comparison and jealousy creep in and say, uh-oh, that's it, that's the bad eye. That's it. That's the eye that feels so natural, but reveals jealousy and greed and comparison and ingratitude. It's a bad lens. It's an untrue lens, even when it feels justified. And then to take that bad eye, that bad lens, and take it to Jesus and say, will you help me with this? Will you help guard me from this? Will you help me deal with my disappointments without developing a bad eye? Will you help me see you clearly? Will you help me see your generosity to others as evidence of your goodness, not of a lack of goodness to me? And in in the spirit of trying to help us diagnose where we may have a bad eye, I'll just offer one quick thought. If, If it is difficult for you to be around a person or type of people that you are jealous of, who have what you want, I'm afraid that might possibly be evidence of a bad eye starting to grow. And I don't know your particulars, and I don't say that definitively at all. I'm just offering a potential way you might notice that. Because Romans calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And in some circumstances, that is incredibly difficult. But a good eye, so to speak, sees God's goodness to others as evidence of his goodness. 
and fights against the jealousy that can splinter us apart and isolate us from one another. We were talking about the sermon in our, our teaching team meeting recently, and a friend of mine in there said, you know, sometimes people tend to stick around people in places that are less prone to make them feel disappointed in God. And I was like, oh, And I understand the pull of that, but when we see God rightly, we see more and more clearly that no Christian's eternal status will include disappointment. So watch out for the bad eye growing wherever it might be in your life. And then lastly, a few encouragements for some of us in the room. Uh, First, I know that some of you might carry deep and lasting grief over the ways in which your life has not or does not seem to be turning out the way you hoped. I know that you have listened to much of this thinking that other people don't feel the weight of this the way that you do. They don't mourn. They don't miss out the way that you have to. They don't get it. And I won't belittle or negate your grief, not in the slightest. I will only ask, are you able to trust in the audacious promise of Christ himself? Are you willing to trust that he not only can, but will fill every deficit you feel, no matter the weight or depth of it? Are you willing to take Jesus at his word that the new world will be full of joys better than those of earth, including any that you might miss out on? And that you who might feel last here may just be first in it. The invitation for some of us is to trust the goodness of Christ in your lack. Trust that he who gave up his very life for you means what he says, that he is so good, so unreasonably generous, there's no deficit you have that will not ultimately be fulfilled in the new world to come. And I don't know exactly what sense of lack you feel. I won't promise that the rewards in heaven will produce the exact particular thing you long for in the exact way. But what we are promised is that the deficit will be filled. More than you can imagine. And then for others of us in the room, maybe the invitation is to differentiate expectations from promises of God. The reality is an unmet expectation does not equal a broken promise. Some of your posture toward God may come from believing he made a promise to you that he has in fact not made. Some of your posture toward God may come from believing he made a promise to you that he did not in fact make. So unless it is written in scripture, I would not prescribe any particular specific outcome to your life. He did not and has not guaranteed that your marriage, your job, your kids, your family, your fill-in-the-blank will be like the mental image you had. And if you believe he has, you are setting yourself up to have a bad eye. So maybe some of us this morning, maybe we need to hear... God's saying to you, friend, I've done you no wrong. Done you no wrong. Just as he told the worker in the parable, 
that he has kept the most important promise he has ever made by giving you himself. And the things he actually has promised you to never leave or forsake you are capable of being enough for you in the midst of whatever disappointment life may bring. And as we wrap up, I'd just like to once again ponder the question that Peter asked Jesus at the very beginning. What then will we get? Boiled down to its simplest form, Jesus' answer was, here on earth, probably not everything you hope for. Probably not everything your neighbor or friend will get. But in the new world, more than you could ever dream. And evidently, his answer was good enough for Peter and the others who heard it. Because they went on to live lives made categorically more difficult by their faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Most of them likely missed out on wives, children, lands, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and most certainly riches. But in the age to come, they will lack nothing that they sacrificed. Nothing. And they who heard the word hundredfold will see what it looks like. You'll feel the weight of it, the joy of it in a land where disappointment has died, where jealousy and comparison are no more because our eyes are stunned and glowing with the unreasonable generosity of God. Eyes who were once bad made forever good because of who they behold.